0: When it comes to all of us, there's uh, quite a bit that we don't have in common, but there is one thing uh, that we all have in common, and, and that's the fact that we all love a good story. And the only thing that's better than a good story is a great story. And when it comes to either a good story or a great story, the whatever and the whoever and the whenever and the wherever, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's telling us. doesn't matter what it's about. doesn't matter where we are or what time of the day uh, that they're telling us the story. We just love a good story. And like I said, the only thing that we love more than a good story is a Great story, Uh, when you think about all good stories and you think about all great stories, uh, someone said that they all begin the same way. Something like this, Uh, once upon a time in such and such a place, something happened. Every good story that we've ever heard or every great story that we've ever told basically began the same way. Once upon a time in such and such a place, something happened. And then after that, we're introduced to the main character of the book or the movie or the play that we're watching you know, the main character, we're introduced to them and then something happens and it sweeps them up into the main plot line of the movie or the book. And then uh, there emerges an antagonist, someone who's like a villain, it's a something or a someone who stands in the way of the main character, uh, keeping them from doing what he or she needs to do or supposed to do. And, And so then there's conflict and there's tension. And then there's a crisis, that moment when all seems lost and it seems like an inescapable reality, but then the central character the hero of the story prevails. And then there's resolution to all the unanswered questions uh, that came before. And basically that's every good story and every great story that we've ever heard in our entire lives. Now, I know that you probably don't think about this very much, but, but I love to think about these things, especially in light of what we're talking about today. But in my opinion, the greatest stories have stories within the story. Uh, The greatest stories always have stories within the stories. There's multiple narratives in play. There's the background narrative. There's supporting narrative. There's the narratives that go sideways. There's misdirecting narrative. And then there's the grand narrative, what the story is actually about. And for me the more stories that are going on the better because it means that you have to pay a little bit more attention because the details matter and sometimes what you think is going to happen is not what happens because the narrative takes you here and then there's a surprise and then there's moments when you see it coming from the very beginning but when there's multiple stories within a story to me that just makes the story that much better. And so, like I said, we all love good stories and great stories, and my favorite story of all time, uh, I I love books, and I love plays, and I love movies, but my favorite story of all time, and and I just think it's the greatest story that's ever been told, and of course I'm talking about The Godfather and and the movie, (laughs) And, and, and here's the thing, Godfather is the greatest movie that's ever been made, it is the greatest story that's ever been told, and if you don't agree, you have the right to be wrong. And I just want you to know, you are wrong. No, listen, you are wrong. I'm talking about, and you say, which one are you talking about? One, two, or three? Yes. I'm talking about all three. I'm talking about the trilogy. And we could talk about it. I could talk about it all day long. I'm not going to, but I could talk about, you know, which one I think is the strongest among the three. But when you take the movie and you take the story of the movie, I think there's not been a better movie produced in cinema. I don't think there's ever been a better story told uh, than The Godfather. And if you haven't seen The Godfather, spoiler alert, and and I'll just say this. If you haven't seen The Godfather, I don't think you're due the courtesy because you should have already seen it. What are you doing with your life? Okay. Uh, But when you think about The Godfather, you know, you're introduced in the very beginning to to the Godfather himself, Marlon Brando, Vito Corleone, and you think that the story is going to be about him. You think he's the main character. You think he's what screenplay writers would call the protagonist. You think that this is the guy that the whole thing is going to be about, but it turns out to be that's not the case. The Godfather, Marlon Brando, Vito Corleone, he is a big part of the story, but he is not the central part of the story. And the opening scene of the movie, we're also introduced to Al Pacino, who played Michael Corleone, the son of the Godfather, Vito Corleone. And when we're introduced to him, he's at the wedding of his sister, Connie. And so at this wedding, there's all of these gangsters, there's all of this stuff going on. You know, there's all these folks who have no scruples and there they are, you know, mobsters and gangsters and murderers and just all this stuff going on. And here he is. He's fresh home from war. He's got his uniform on. He's clothed in honor. And he's talking to his future bride, Kate. And as he looks at his whole family here at this large party, right? This large party's going on. And as this party's going on, he looks at all of these gangsters. And he looks at all these mobsters and all these crime family members. And he looks at his future wife, Kate, and he says, that's my family. It's not me. That's my family, it's not me. In other words, I want you to know that I'm not like them. I've gone off to war, I served my country, I'm trying to be honorable, I love my family, but I know who my family, I know who they are and I'm not my family, that's them, I'm not them. And thus begins the story, the real story of the Godfather, because soon after his dad, you know, Vito Corleone, there's a hit put out on him, and there was an attempted assassination that, you know, he survived barely. And because of it, because of this event, Michael is thrust in to all of this drama. He didn't want any part of the family business, but now he's being thrown right into the middle of the family business. And then his older brother Sonny is killed out on the causeway. And I know what you're thinking are we in church right now? Yes. I just need you to pause with me for just a minute and think. Sonny's killed out on the the causeway. And Michael, he is thrown deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into this world that he never wanted any part of to begin with. And thus the story begins to be that the moment he's dragged in, he wants out. He never wanted in to begin with, but the moment that he was dragged in, he wanted out. And so ever since he got in, he tried to find a way to get out and be a legitimate businessman. And then in part three, when he thinks he's finally legitimate, when he's finally able to get out from the underworld, that's when the famous line comes, You know, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. And he's pulled back in again. And then at the end of the movie, the final scene of the movie, Michael is much older, he's aged, he's in Sicily, and no longer is he clothed in honor. But in the final moments of his life, he has lost the two things that has mattered most to him. He has lost his honor, and he has lost his family, and he dies alone. And it is the tragedy of all tragedies. That is the story of the story. There he is alone without honor and without family. It is the tragedy of all tragedies because within the tragedy, we can find our own story. Because like Michael, there have been parts of our life where we said, you know what? That's them, it's not me. But it ended up being us anyway. There were some things that we decided that we would never do or never become, but we actually ended up doing those things and becoming those things, though we said we never would. And so we got pulled in, it seemed, into things that we never wanted to get pulled in to begin with once upon a time. It is a tragedy that is common to every single one of us to some degree or the other. It is the tragedy of the worst kind because we can find ourselves within the story. Now, the thing about you know The Godfather, there's lots of stories going on but there's really only one story being told. The greatest stories have a level of complexity without forfeiting their simplicity. This is gonna make sense in just a moment. There's lots of storylines going on in the Godfather you know, Sonny, and the Italias, and then there's the backstory in part two, and there's Michael trying to get in and trying to get out. There's his sister, then there's his nephew, and there's his daughter, and there's his son, and then there's theater. And then there's all of these enemies that are out there, and there's long grudges, and there's all kinds of complexity within the story. But in the end, we find out that there was only one story the entire time. That's exactly what we see happening in Scripture There's a lot of complexity within the scripture. There's a lot of things that are going on in the scripture. There's a story here and there's a story there and there's a part here and there's a background over here and there's some characters there that we're not really sure what they have to do with those people over there. There's a lot of complexity to scripture. And if we're gonna be honest about it, we would have to admit that with this book comes a lot of complexity. Matter of fact, if you've ever opened up a Bible and tried to read it and experienced the complexity of the Bible, would you say, I have? Some of you gave up reading the Bible a long time ago because you opened up the Bible and and you were confronted immediately with what seemed like a lot of complexity and you just didn't even know what to do with it. There's a lot of complexity within the scripture. Think about it. It was written by over 40 different authors. There's 66 different books as we've talked about. It's only one volume, but it's actually a collection of books. There's 40 plus authors. It was written in three different languages on three different continents over a period of 1500 years. It was written in ancient languages within an ancient cultural framework, two ancient people who had an ancient understanding of the world that they were in. And of course it's going to bring complexity with it, especially when we try to open up the scriptures with our modern day framework, our modern day biases, our modern day experiences, our modern day sensibilities. And we try to make sense of something that was written in ancient languages, in an ancient culture, to ancient people who had ancient understandings. Don't you think that trying to understand it thousands of years removed doesn't bring with it a certain level of complexity? Well, of course it does. But here's the good news. With all the complexity that we find in scripture, and there are many levels of complexity, the good news is the overarching story of scripture is still one of simplicity. Even though there is lots of complexity going on, the scripture never forfeits the simplicity of its overall message. That's why this series that we're in, and we're in part two of it today, and I told you last week, the first two weeks are introduction to the series that we really dive into next week. This is why this series is so important to me. This is why I think this series should be so important to you. Because what we're saying is that the story of Scripture, the overarching story of Scripture, helps us make sense of the stories in the Scripture. Yes, there's a lot of complexity, but yet there is a simplicity to the message of the Scripture that all of us, that all of us can grab hold of. There's parts of the Bible that we don't like. There's parts of the Bible we don't understand. There's parts of the Bible we're glad that's in there. We're, there's parts of the Bible that we kind of wish we could take out because it would make talking about the Bible easier. It would make defending the Bible a little bit easier. It would be you know a little bit easier to make sense of it all, but yet it's in there and we're not really sure know, you know, what to do with it and, and we're not sure how it fits and, and we're not sure what the interpretation is. If there is you know one that's suitable and, and one that we can actually know, we don't know what the application is. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed, for those of you who've been attending church for years, have you ever noticed that there's parts of this book that you've never heard a sermon on? Now see, us preacher types, we were hoping you hadn't noticed. Why is it that there's certain parts of the Bible we love to talk about, but there's other parts of the Bible that we don't ever talk about? Why are there some stories that we go to over and over and over again, but there's some stories we we don't even know how to begin to tell that story in such a way as to teach what it may mean or what it doesn't mean? It's because there's a lot of complexity to this book, and let's just face it, there's a lot of stories in this book. Matter of fact, you know, we were told some of them since childhood. You know, we'd go to Sunday school teachers and God bless all the Sunday school teachers. You know, they'd say, come on, kids, come on, come on. Come on, it's Bible story time, Bible story time. And they would tell us all the great stories of scripture. Or so we thought. They left out a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, they told us about Father Abraham, 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 Father Abraham, Father of faith. But they never told us the story about Abraham pimping out his wife for the night down in Egypt to a bunch of guys in order to save his own skin. I never made Sunday school. Here, class, here, color this. (laughs) Has anybody got a beige? (laughs) You go, you you know, kid comes out, honey, what'd you talk about in Sunday school? What'd y'all color today? Here, mom. I mean, we, there are some things that just, we just didn't hear about. It's like, what is, what is that all about? And, and, you know, we were told, of course, about David. Everybody loves David, King David, little David, shepherd boy David, you know, David who took down Goliath. But they never told us in Sunday school about when he wanted to get married, you know, to King Saul's daughter. And so he we went to King Saul and said, hey, I'd love to marry your daughter. And King Saul said, well, if you want to marry my daughter, it's going to cost you. He said, okay, you know, what, what, what's the bridal price? He said, a hundred foreskins of the Philistine men. Who are these people? <laughs> Has it ever dawned on you once to ask for the foreskin of anything? No. So what does David do? David goes out and brings back not 100, but David brings back 200 foreskins of Philistine. Now, my question is, when I read the scripture, is who, who had the terrible job of counting them? Because I'm sure David brought back, said, Here's 200. Twice as much as what you ask for. And, you know, Saul looks at one of his, you know, royal, you know, servants and says, you know, go count these. And he's like, one. That's how I read the scriptures. I I get so distracted sometimes and I just start laughing. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is this is incredible. And and then, you know, they they tell us, you know, half of a story. You know, they tell us about, you know, how Samson, you know, killed all these people with, with a jawbone but they left out the best detail in the King James Version part of it, the jawbone of an ass. I mean, as a kid, that's a big deal. It's like, wow, that, that sounds PG-13. And for those of you who are wondering, that's for donkey in the old language. And, and, but it's like, you know, they would, they would just leave out little words and parts of the stories and. You know, they, they didn't tell us about dismembering bodies and sending it out to the, to the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they left out the story about the woman who took the guy in for the night and said, Hey, I know, you know, you're, you're needing a place of shelter. So sleep in this tent and I'm going to stand guard from the people who are hunting you. And then he waited for her to go, waited, she waited for him to go to sleep. And then when he fell asleep, she drove a nail through his skull. That showed up in Shepherd's nighttime devotional book about four years ago. And I was reading it and then it dawned on me what story it was. And I just changed the ending of the story. Because I'm thinking, who put this in a nighttime devotion for children? Shepherd, she waited until he fell asleep, and then she drove a nail through his skull. Watch out, buddy. Sleep good. Sleep tight. Sleep tight. God bless. There's things that we don't talk about. There's stories that we don't tell, and we don't even, sometimes we don't even, why is that in there? Right? I mean, they they didn't even feel comfortable, even as teenagers, to tell us about the Song of Solomon. I mean, when she starts talking about her man and says, I, I want to drink the nectar from his tree, I'm like, what? <laughs> what? And then, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it's crazy. And he talks about her and says, her breasts are like two fawns. It's like, what? <laughs> Tonight in youth group, Song of Solomon, open up your Bible. No, they don't do that. And some of you men, some, let me tell you, if you want to bring back some some good old fashioned Pizzazz. just go home, read the modern version of the Song of Solomon and I'm telling you, see what it does. Some of you have been married so long, you're so bored, men, you heard two fonds, you were thinking about deer season starting in November. <laughs> that's what you were thinking. You were thinking, oh my goodness, it's, it's almost time. But that's it. I, I, there's so much we don't talk about. Why is it? It's because there's complexity. But the parts can be made sense by the whole. When we understand these stories, we can begin to know how to look at and how to think about the stories. The point of the scripture helps us make sense of the part. So last week we talked about how scripture either offers us answers or points us in the direction of answers to the last two biggest questions which is does God exist and what is God like? Does God exist and what is God like? And from the very beginning of Genesis one, Moses said in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and he points us to the observable universe as a reason to believe in God And as a reason to observe what we can know about the cosmos, the heavens, because the heavens are ultimately declaring to us and demonstrating for us the glory of God. And so Christians believe that creation is one of the ways that God has revealed himself to us. But not only that, and this is kind of where, you know, we move further today into the discussion. Christians not only believe that God gave us creation as a means to reveal himself to us. Christians believe that God has given to us the scripture as a way to reveal himself to us. We believe that we can look at creation, whether it's looking up or looking within or looking around, and that creation teaches us that there is a creator, there is a designer, and can tell us a little bit about what God is like. But Christianity, we believe that God did more than just give us creation, that God gave us the scriptures. And within the scripture, God is revealing to us what he is like, so here are the 66 books, beginning in Genesis, ending in Revelation. And Christians believe, That God, beginning in the very beginning and all the way through to the end of the New Testament, that God is revealing himself to us. That God is teaching us some things about him that he wants us to know about him. And so when we think about how important the scriptures are, the scriptures are so important because at the end of the day, we believe that the scriptures are teaching us about God. It is leading us in the direction of the reality of God. And beyond that, it's taking us into a place where we can begin to formulate an answer to the question, what is God like? Because without a source... Without an authority to help us answer that question, we end up constructing God into our own image to suit our own purposes. But when there is a source like creation, when there is an authority like the scripture, we do not have the freedom to conjure a God into the image that we want him to be, but we are forced to surrender and submit and to take the revelation of God that he has given to us himself be it through creation or through the scripture. Now, the number one question after this that all people should ask is, well, how trustworthy is it? How reliable are the scriptures? Can we actually trust what the scriptures say? You know, have they been tinkered with? Have they been edited? Have they been revised? You know, have some parts been purposely kept out and some parts were put in for political power plays by Constantine and and the Roman Empire? You know, how did we even get the Bible to begin with? And who got to choose who was in the Bible and who wasn't in the Bible? And all of these questions are good questions. All of these questions are logical questions because if we're gonna say that the scriptures reveal God to us, then we should know, are these scriptures reliable? And more than that, are they trustworthy? Now, when we talk about the trustworthiness of scripture, uh, we could talk about a lot of things and perhaps one day we'll do an entire series about it because it warrants one and it could use an entire series. But we could talk about how the Old Testament has been proven reliable time and time and time and time again through archeology span and other finds. You know, once upon a time, skeptics of the Bible said that there was no such city in antiquity uh, called Sodom and Gomorrah, that Sodom and Gomorrah was a complete biblical invention, that Sodom and Gomorrah was not a real place. It was a fabricated story to make a fabricated point about a fabricated God. And for years and years and years, that's what a lot of scholarship thought until they found the ruins of the ancient city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what they discovered was that the city apparently burned from the top down. There was a level of ash, there was a level of char, and it was a heavily populated city out there on the plains, exactly where Genesis talks about. And then all of a sudden, scholarship began to concede, okay, this appears to be the ancient city of Sodom and Gomorrah that was mentioned in the Old Testament. And things like that have happened over and over again. For years, skeptics of the Bible said there's no such thing as the walls around Jericho. That is a made-up story until they found, they excavated the walls around the ancient city of Jericho. For years, believe it or not, for years, scholarship said there's no such person as King David. King David is a complete invention of the Old Testament writers until they found proof that there really was a King David. The same thing with the ancient Hittite people. Scholarship said there's no such record of Hittites anywhere else in the world. This is not a real thing. It's just a story that was made up until they found evidence of the Hittite people. And it just goes on and on and on and on. We can talk about 1947. And in 1947, there was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Israel. And what was so big about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was this, that some of the manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls dated back a thousand years earlier than any copy of a manuscript that we had up until that time. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Because it proved that the copies of what we have today is the same copies that existed years and years and centuries and centuries ago, dating back to the time when it was originally written. That is to say that it wasn't written in the beginning. And then along the way, people erased and people changed and people added to and people took away. No, what was written in the beginning is the copy that we still have in front of us today. We could talk about the New Testament and we could talk about how that the, uh, the evidence for the manuscript reliability of the New Testament is, is greater than anything that we have in antiquity and history. If you take some of the most you know, well-regarded pieces of literature in history or you know, works in history like Plato or Homer or, or things like that, if you used all the manuscripts that we have uh, concerning those ancient works, they would probably stack about four feet tall. But if you take the thousands of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, it would stack over a mile high. That is to say that what we have, as far as evidence goes, that leads us to believe that the Old Testament written record is reliable, that it is trustworthy. The same with the New Testament. We have so much evidence that it is a good thing to know some of it. I I don't expect you to memorize. I just want you to know that there are people who study these types of things and people have great reasons to believe in the veracity and the reliability of the scripture. We could talk about, you know, Jesus. We could talk about the fact that, you know, there's 10 non-Christian sources uh, concerning the life of Jesus within 150 years of his life. Uh, Tiberius Caesar only had nine, so a carpenter from Nazareth had 10 copies you know, of non-Christian writers who wrote about him, and the leader of the world only had nine uh, sources that wrote about him. And non-Christian writers uh, basically verify the accounts of the Gospels, that Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar, uh, that Jesus was a wonder worker, that Jesus lived a virtuous life, that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that Jesus, you know, was not only crucified, but he was crucified during Passover, and that three days later, his tomb was found empty, and that his first followers believed that he had been raised from the dead, and they were willing to die for that cause. They were willing to die for that message, and not only that, but they abdicated all the gods of the Rome, Romans and they worship Jesus. Jesus alone is God. And this is from the non-Christian sources. Uh, this is not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is what non-Christians who were even hostile towards Christians had to say. So we can talk day and night about the reasons why you should trust the text that we have in the New Testament specifically and that you can trust the text that we have in the Old Testament. In Luke alone, In the Gospel of Luke alone, he mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands. And they've all proven accurate. John has 59, the Gospel of John has 59 historically verified things within it. For years, they said the Pool of Siloam listed in the Gospel of John never existed. They just found it a few years ago in the sewer system underneath Jerusalem. There's 30 different figures named in the New Testament that have been independently corroborated outside of Christian circles Small town politicians are mentioned. Topographies mentioned. Weather patterns are mentioned. Port cities are mentioned. Water depth are mentioned in the New Testament. And every single one of them have proved accurate. So why are you telling me this? Because the New Testament is not written as myth. The New Testament is written as history. And that is a big deal. And so Christians consider the New Testament reliable for good reason and we consider the Old Testament reliable uh, for good reasons as well. But At the end, any discussion about the Bible, and and remember, I wanted us all just to start back at ground zero. I wanted us to start like we didn't know anything so that we can get ready for next week when we dive into the Old Testament uh, and we begin our journey. But when we think about the the, the Scriptures, both the old and the new, any discussion about why we have confidence in the Scripture and, and why we have an interest in the Scripture, it always, it always should begin with Jesus. Jesus is the reason that any of us are interested in the Old Testament. Jesus is the only reason that we have a New Testament because Jesus is the center of the story. If Jesus is all that there is, then then Jesus is really the only reason that you and I have for having any kind of interest in Old or New Testament. So when you take the old away and you take the new away, you're reminded of the fact that without Jesus, without Jesus, we wouldn't have the New Testament. Don't miss this. Without Jesus, we wouldn't have the New Testament, and without Jesus, we wouldn't care about the Old Testament. This this is like such a big deal. It may not feel like a big deal, but this is a big deal. It's so hard for us to even imagine a life where Jesus is not part of the narrative, or Jesus is not part of the conversation, or Jesus is not part of the framework. But without Jesus, we wouldn't have the New Testament. The only reason the New Testament was written was because of Jesus. And without Jesus, you and I as non-Jewish people, we wouldn't care about the Old Testament. So the conversation about the scripture begins with Jesus. Now, when Jesus showed up on the planet, Jesus stepped into, and this is a big deal to understand how to see the scripture as a whole. When Jesus stepped onto the pages of history, Jesus stepped into a pre-existing narrative It's like the movie had already started and then all of a sudden we're introduced to Jesus. That there's a whole first part of the movie where things have been going on. There's multiple narratives and multiple stories and multiple characters and there's a storyline. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the movie as it was, Jesus shows up. And Jesus steps into a Jewish history, a Jewish heritage, Jewish values, Jewish tradition, Jewish culture, and a Jewish religion. And this is such a big deal because Jesus didn't show up isolated from everything around him. Jesus showed up in the middle of a narrative that was already in progress. When Jesus showed up, he had all of this behind him. When Jesus showed up, there were already the books of Moses. There were already the books of history. There were already the books of poetry. There were already the books of the major and the minor prophets. And they were all telling a story. They told the story of creation. They told the story of how God selected a people, a nation, and through that nation, God was gonna do something for all the nations. And the other books chronicle the history of that nation how that nation, they became captives in Egypt and Moses, he led them out free. And then ultimately they became a kingdom and then they were a divided kingdom and then they were conquered and they were not a kingdom at all. And all through that time, the people struggled with their devotion to God. They would serve God and then they would serve other gods and they would serve God and serve other gods. This was the history of the people that Jesus showed up in to. Jesus was a part of that history. Jesus, this was his Bible. The Old Testament was the Bible that Jesus read. It was the Bible that Jesus used. It was the Bible that Jesus believed. It was the Bible that Jesus loved. And Jesus showed up into a storyline where some people, a few people, a remnant of people, were expecting a Messiah, a Savior, a champion to come. That would not only save Israel, but would save in some way all the nations of the world. And when Jesus showed up, there were people looking for a savior. And then when Jesus showed up, he opened up his mouth and he started teaching. And when he started teaching, he created ripples for both the temple and the empire. He said some things that people didn't like, that people couldn't make sense of. He said things about himself. He said, me and the father are one. And it seemed as though he was speaking blasphemy. Jesus claimed to have the ability to forgive sin on earth. That was something that only God could do. And people were offended when they heard Jesus say such things. Jesus looked at a bunch of Pharisees one day and said, I have always existed. There There has never been a time when I have not existed. Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him because they knew what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God. And then Jesus, he would talk about the Old Testament and he would say, listen, The Old Testament testifies about me. The Old Testament points to me. And everybody just thought it was so offensive and so blasphemous for him to say such a thing. And then on top of that, he befriended sinners and became their friend. And then he spoke of a kingdom that was coming and people started calling him the king of a soon coming kingdom. And now the empire's upset. And so in the end, Jesus was crucified. And when he was hanging on the cross and he said, it is finished, everybody in the crowd that followed him believed that it was finished. Those who thought that he might be the Messiah were convinced now that he's not the Messiah because he had never looked less like a Messiah than when he was hanging on the cross. And so when Jesus breathed his last breath and his first followers were no longer his followers, they walked away that day without hope, without faith and without a savior. But as you know, and as we know, that was on Friday, on Sunday, everything changed. When Jesus was raised from the dead, everything about everything changed. And the greatest thing, perhaps, that changed beyond what Jesus did for all the world was the fact that we were given a brand new way to read the Old Testament. The first followers of Jesus were Jewish. That means that they had been raised their entire life with Genesis through Malachi. Their entire life they had been taught a very particular way to read this particular Bible, to interpret this particular Bible, and to apply this particular Bible. It was the Hebrew Scriptures. But after Jesus was raised from the dead and the tomb was empty, his first Jewish followers began to radically reinterpret the Old Testament. And that was a very big deal. And it's very important for us to understand before we move on next week. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and Peter preached his first sermon ever. It was the first Christian sermon in history. He had no New Testament to read from. The New Testament had not been written yet. What scripture did he quote on the day of Pentecost? He quoted the Old Testament and he quoted the prophet Joel. He said, Joel predicted that this day would happen. And that was unthinkable because never had Peter and never had anybody in the crowd ever read the book of Joel the way the book of Joel was now being read and interpreted. Peter was saying, the book of Joel was predicting this time and place of what we are experiencing today. And that was such a big deal. And then he quoted David, who wrote many of the Psalms. And he quoted David, and he began to reinterpret the writings of David in the Psalms. This was a huge deal because there was only a certain way to read and interpret the Old Testament before an empty tomb. But after an empty tomb and after after a risen Savior, now all of a sudden, Jesus' followers were looking at the Old Testament in a brand new, dramatically different way. Matter of fact, a few days later, Peter's standing in the temple and he preaches another sermon and this is what he says. He says, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the, talk to me, what is this? Prophets. Prophets. Who are the prophets? They're Old Testament. That's who we call Old Testament prophets. He's talking about Jewish prophets. He stands up and Peter now sees the Old Testament in a completely different way. A way that he did not see the Old Testament on the Friday that Jesus was crucified. He did not see the Old Testament that way on Saturday while Jesus was buried. But on Sunday, after the resurrection, after he becomes an eyewitness of the resurrection, he now looks back to the Old Testament and he cannot... Read it the same way. He says that the prophets, they told us about this. They said that this day would come. They said that the Messiah would suffer. They had never seen that before. Why had they never seen that before? Because they didn't know how to read it. They could only read it in light of Jesus. Jesus became the framework from which to read the Old Testament the way the Old Testament was originally meant to be read. Except it couldn't be read that way until Jesus came and accomplished what it, did, what it was that he accomplished. And then he goes on, he says, indeed, and this is, this is so great. Indeed, beginning with Samuel. Now, Samuel was not the first prophet, but, but he, was, he was regarded as the first in the formal line of prophets. And listen to what he's saying. Beginning with Samuel and all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. They have a dramatic new way of interpreting the Old Testament. The prophets beginning with Samuel all the way through Malachi now have spoken of these events. They are totally reinterpreting the Old Testament in a way that it had never been interpreted or read before. A few years later. Uh, Peter standing in a house of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And, and he stands up and he begins to preach. And this is what he says. He says, all, not some, all the prophets testify about him. Who's him? Jesus. That everyone who believes in him, who's him? Jesus. Receives forgiveness of sins in his name. And again, we can't understand as Gentile people in the 21st century. But for this particular group of people in the first century, this particular Jewish group of people to begin to reinterpret The Old Testament text was such a big deal. They were reading it in a different way because the tomb was empty. They were reading it in a way they could not read it before the tomb was empty. And now to them, the Old Testament did not seem as an ongoing narrative. The Old Testament seemed to be a story which had now come to its fulfillment that the Old Testament had come to a ending point. And the ending point was Jesus. And now Jesus was the beginning of a brand new part of the story that is still part of the story that has been the story from the very beginning that will be the story until the very end. And this was radical, this was dramatic, This, this was incredible for them to begin to see the Old Testament now as something that had ended in some way, that it had been fulfilled in some way not only Peter believed this but also an Old Testament scholar by the name of Paul that we know as the apostle Paul the apostle Paul this is how he preached it says that Paul went into the synagogue and on three sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures that was his custom the scriptures that you know that Luke is recording in the book of acts is not the new testament it's not been written yet it's the old testament so Paul would go into the Jewish synagogue and he would open up the Old Testament and he would leverage the Old Testament text to make a case for Jesus. This was a big deal because now it seems as though the Jewish scriptures were not necessarily as much about the Jewish people and their history or the Jewish law that had been given to them. Now it seems as though the Jewish scripture is about one particular Jewish carpenter and he goes on to say this jesus i am proclaiming to you as the messiah he said so paul could no longer read the old testament the same peter could no longer read the old testament the same the first jewish followers of jesus began to look at the old testament in a way that no one had ever seen it before nor could they have apart from an empty tomb Then as non-Jewish people, like you and me, because we're Gentiles, as non-Jewish people got interested in a Jewish savior and followed a Jewish savior, non-Jewish people got interested in the Jewish scriptures. Why? Because Peter and Paul and the other apostles were teaching that the Jewish scriptures taught and preached and pointed to Jesus. So non-Jewish followers of a Jewish savior said, hey, we wanna know what the Jewish scriptures say about Jesus because now we love Jesus and we follow Jesus. And all of a sudden the Hebrew scriptures began to be thought of as Christian scriptures because they pointed to Jesus supposedly from the very beginning. And what, what the big deal is about this is that what we see happening in the book of Acts is the message of the prophets became the message of the apostles. The message of the prophets became the message of the apostles. It was only until after the resurrection that the Old Testament truly began to make sense. That the stories began to be able to find their place within the story. Because the Old Testament had predicted a Savior. And now that Savior had shown up on the pages of history. And Jesus had conquered death and had been resurrected from the dead. And now all of a sudden everything began to be seen in a different way. Isaiah 53 for 500 years before Jesus, they had read Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 had been written 500 years before Jesus and, and Jewish scholars and Jewish teachers had read that particular text and nobody really knew what it was about. There were suspicions and speculations, but after the resurrection, they would open up Isaiah 53 and they would read these words and they said he was despised and rejected by mankind, a, a man of suffering and he was familiar with pain Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. And we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open up his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open up his mouth. We cannot read those words without thinking about Jesus. But it is only possible... Because of the resurrection. There were 500 years before Jesus that no one knew what to make of that particular text. Yet it will please the Lord to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring. And the Lord will prosper his hand. As he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Only after the resurrection were texts like that making sense. Where did Peter and where did Paul and where did the apostles get this idea about the Old Testament and how to read it in a new way? They got it from Jesus and this is where we end it. After the resurrection, Jesus encountered two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And these disciples thought that Jesus was dead. And so they were mournful and they were heartbroken and and Jesus just comes up walking beside of them and for whatever reason we really don't have a good answer to, they didn't really recognize Jesus. And Jesus begins to speak with them and he said, how foolish are you? How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, you all should have seen this coming. This has been part of the story the whole time. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? And then Jesus said, or then it says about Jesus, and beginning with Moses, that's the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law. And the prophets, that's the rest. The Old Testament, using the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus believed the Old Testament was inspired. Jesus believed the Old Testament was the words of God. Jesus is on record saying that he believed the Old Testament from Abel to Zechariah. Abel is in the book of Genesis and Zechariah is in the book of Malachi. And Jesus, most importantly, believed that the Old Testament pointed to him. Without Jesus' resurrection, we wouldn't have the New Testament. And without Jesus, we wouldn't care about the Old Testament. Christians believe that God gave us creation to reveal himself to us. Christians believe that God gave us the scriptures in order to reveal himself to us. But most important of all, Christians believe that God gave us Jesus to reveal to us perfectly what God is like. Because after all, it was Jesus who said, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. And if you wanna know what God is like, you can look up. And if you wanna know what God is like, you can open up the scriptures. But if you want to see the perfect picture of what God is like, look to Jesus. If you wanna know how God feels about you, look at Jesus. If you wanna know how much God loves you, look at Jesus. If you wanna know how much God wants to have a relationship with you, look to Jesus. In John chapter one, John wraps up the whole storyline in the very beginning. He says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. The word or Jesus or God became flesh, made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closer relationship with the father, it is he who has made him. No. So if you want to know what God is like, you can look up. If you want to know what God is like, you can open up the scriptures. But if you want to know the perfect image of God, never take your eyes off of Jesus. And as you look to Jesus, you will receive a framework for how to read the rest of the scriptures. Heavenly Father, with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, God help us to be reminded that you want us to know you. God, you put the stars and the sun and the moon in the sky and you've you've placed complexity all around us in biology, chemistry, and physics and all of those can point us in the direction of the architect of it all. God, you've given us the scriptures and we're so grateful for them because they, they show us what you're like. They show us who you are, your desire and your plan the world. But God, thank you for sending Jesus who said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. At all of our churches, let's just stand together. We're going to sing one last song and we're going to make a big deal of Jesus because Jesus is a big deal. And Jesus made a big deal out of you and out of me when he died for our sins, when he was buried, when he was raised so that we could be forgiven fully, freely, forever. Father, We sing and we honor and we worship you. In Jesus' name.